Awesome. Okay. Hey, everybody. It's Carmen Schober with the No Apologies podcast, the Stacios podcast. And I'm talking with Ian Hewitt today. Ian is the co-founder, co-editor of Stacios. And it's been a little while since we just had a podcast, you and I. So hello again, Ian. It has. Of course, we talk all the time, but good to do another podcast with Yes, you. yes, we talk. We have numerous Facebook messages going, but rarely are the, is the public, does the public get to know what's going on? We're going to be talking about a article that Ian just wrote for the stream. Ian's article is called, After Ginsburg's Death, A Coup is a Realistic Possibility. And if you haven't read that yet, you should definitely read it. We're going to reference it throughout this conversation, and I will link it in the podcast notes. Um, But Ian, just real quick, give our listeners the main takeaway they need from that piece. Well, I should say, if you're listening to this pretty shortly after we've recorded it, it's been pointed out to me that if you Google Ginsburg coup, it is the first result. So you can That's easily awesome. find it. Cool. Yeah. I saw that it had a lot of shares. It was like close to 150. Unfortunately, I think that's actually a bad thing. It's more of a bad thing for the country than it is a good thing for me, because what it indicates is that people don't appreciate that what is being contemplated right now on the left in the pages of the New York Times and amongst MSNBC talking heads is a coup. Court packing, which is now widely being proposed, this is something that, as you know, Carmen, I've been trying to raise the alarm about for a while is in effect a coup. It's not the first step to the creation of a totalitarian state. It's the last step to the abolition of the Republican system of government and the Constitution. Once the left accomplished that, there are no other necessarily big, sudden, dramatic changes they would need to make to our system of government in order to create a totalitarian state, which suppressed freedom of worship openly, suppressed speech openly, uh, engaged in large-scale disarmament of people. And not necessarily these things will happen in the near future. It's just that this is the point of no return. Whether we allow packing of the court, which in effect would bring about the abolition, the elimination of one of the three branches of government in our constitutional system. You tear that piece out and the entirety of the system does not function as intended. So that's what I'm trying to warn people about. I think that the biggest strategic advantage of court packing for the left right now is, in fact, that Americans are so ignorant of civics. And in particular, I think conservatives know less about civics, at least when it comes to the Supreme Court, than progressives do now, that people would not realize that a coup would happen. So conservatives need anyone who's not a you know a militant totalitarian progressive. If you're a reasonable person on the left, I, I want to appeal to you here as well. This could well be our last chance to stop this from happening without some kind of great civil upheaval. People need to identify this proposal for what it is, use the word coup, and explicitly address the fact that the abolition of the republic is what's on the table now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I know you have been talking about this for a while. This isn't the first time you and I have had this conversation, but this is the first time that I think it's at least somewhat bubbling up in public discourse. Like I sent you the link to some legislator who this is on his mind, but even he had, you were saying that he was thinking about it incorrectly. Do you remember that? 
Let me find I don't, it. I don't recall that exactly, but I, I will tell you I've seen many conservatives talking about court packing as if it is a light matter, mm. as if it's maybe akin to eliminating the filibuster, as if it's some kind of underhanded but sort of cheeky trick that the left is doing. And I want to say to those people as loud as I possibly can, no, you don't understand. You don't understand the role of the Supreme Court in our society. And you don't understand that once the Supreme Court is packed once, it will never be able again ever to check the power of a united president and Congress, which is its function. Right. Is to enforce the Constitution in cases arising under the Constitution against even those two branches when they're united. That function will be permanently erased, which means that the First Amendment, and the Second Amendment, these will become just paper theoretical constructs. And so some might say, well, they are now. No, no, they're not. You, you don't understand how much worse things could get. Yeah. Right now, uh, if the government tried to enact total gun confiscation, I could win in court under the current case law. They tried to discriminate against or shut down my church. I could win in court under the current case law. These Bill of Rights protections are enforceable today. There will become no way to enforce them under court packing by the left. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I found what it was. It was Representative Doug Collins to introduce constitutional amendment to prohibit Supreme Court packing. I sent you that link. And then you said that just based off of what that article said was that you doubted that he even understood what court packing would mean, that it doesn't just simply threaten the integrity of the court, but it would simply end the republic and fundamentally change the whole system of government, which is your whole article, just driving that. Home. Right. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I was responding to there is maybe his comments about why we needed to do yeah. this. And he, I think he said something like we need to protect the integrity of the right. court. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of false equivalents here. This is not at all even really qualitatively similar to the politicization of the court. The fact that the left refused to confirm Robert Bork for political reasons, the fact that the right refused to confirm Merrick Garland for political reasons, these are instances of the politicization of the court. You can argue they infringe upon the court's integrity. What court packing would do is it would once and for all eliminate the Supreme Court as a, a functioning third branch of government and as a check on the other two branches. Yeah. So one question I wanted to ask you about following up with this article, just because I've posted it everywhere and I've gotten in a few different conversations with people. I'll talk about kind of a, a liberal response and then a conservative response. One liberal response that I think their argument is essentially, well, this is OK because Trump or the Republicans have abused power and they are threatening our democracy. So that's why it's OK for leftists to move forward with this plan. I mean, I know the general talking points of how, you know, they believe Trump is a dictator and this and that. But how are they coming to that conclusion? What is going on that actually makes them believe that Trump is making these moves that are somehow abusing his power? Well, what a lawyer on the left would probably say is that because the right denied Merrick Garland for clearly political reasons, because he was an appointee of Obama, now it's our turn to take our revenge. OK, so it's probably purely the Merrick Garland thing. That's it. I think that's that's going to be the primary okay. thing you're going to hear. And I, I have heard um, that justification from left-leaning lawyers okay. who are known to me. So you're, you're going to hear something like that. Now, I don't even want to get into this tit-for-tat 
blame game, even though I think the right wins if you get into the blame yeah. game, the, the right didn't start this process. There's a reason we call it borking. All of the politicization against Kavanaugh, that was right. sort of a playbook that had been written or the left attempted to write during the Thomas confirmation. Right. And they just sort of blew it up into this utterly deranged circus in the case of Kavanaugh. But in any case, let's just set all that aside. The fact is that there is no comparison, even qualitatively, between the politicization of a single nomination, denying one nominee for political reasons, or even repeatedly always opposing any nominee for political reasons, and abolishing the court permanently as a third branch of government. The first three articles of the Constitution set up three branches of government and they give each branch different powers. So that is by itself, if I'm going to make an originalist argument, proof that the framers intended there to be three separate functioning branches of government, each with their own sphere of power. They could not have contemplated that one branch would be effectively abolished. And once you pack the court once, at any point going forward, not, not that the left would necessarily need to, but I'm kind of explaining here why on any level, the court is abolished as a distinct branch of government. Its size can just be doubled if the president and Congress are dissatisfied mm -hmm. with the way that it's ruling. Once you've set that precedent, there, there's no reversing it. So the court is just gone as a third branch of government, as a check on the executive and the legislature. Got it. So there's no, no comparison between that, the, the de facto abolition of our constitutional tripartite separation of powers, and denying this or that nominee for political reasons. Got it. Got it. And then my kind of follow-up question is, I see a lot of conservatives responding to this you know, a lot of people, I think, expressed a lot of gratitude that you wrote it and you're sharing it. I think people are digesting it as important. But there is also this response of kind of like, oh, well, it's all screwed up anyways. The government's already overstepped way too much. There's that or there's the, well, if they try it, we've got all these guns. And it's just sort of just this overconfidence that this is going to be fine <laughs> because of either gun power or I guess just fatalism of we can't slow this down because the snowball is already rolling, if that makes sense. What's sort of your response to those attitudes? That's a really good breakdown of the problem. So I would say I tried to address each of those attitudes amongst conservatives in the piece. So as you said, there's fatalism and then there's this overconfidence that a tyrannical evil government could never happen in the United mm -hmm. States because, you know, whatever the law says, the American people are armed, so they wouldn't let it happen. In the first case, uh, this is where I think ignorance of civics comes into play. If you're a conservative and you think all is lost already, boy, you have just no notion of how much worse things could get and how lucky we are right now. Roe v. Wade, if you're very angry about Roe v. Wade, is one of the most unusual, exceptional cases um, in Supreme Court jurisprudence. There are many, many areas where the right routinely wins significant victories. As I pointed out on the Second Amendment and on the Free Exercise Clause, for example, the First and the Second Amendment are foundational freedoms. So we're in a particularly horrible situation historically if we lose those. Right. You know, if we lose those, then we're facing an omnipotent government. And there's no telling what could happen then. And I say that rhetorically, we do have a good idea of what could happen then, because in every other page of human history, when you have omnipotent government, you have evil and you have horrendous consequences that follow from that. So the Second Amendment 
in the First Amendment without actually being formally overturned could come to have no content if you have a packed Supreme Court reduced to sort of a rubber stamp. And I tried to sort of outline in the column how that could come to pass. And I also outlined a way that I think the left could create hypothetically a totalitarian state in the United States without arising any great organic pushback from conservatives. I think what conservatives have in mind when they think, oh, well, tyranny will never happen here because the American people are armed, is that it's going to be like Star Wars <laughs> and the left is going to suddenly declare like, we are reorganizing into the empire. <laughs> and then like everyone will know to rise up. But that's not how right. it works. There's not going to be one, one big dramatic reveal that now we live in a totalitarian society. Right. Um, Any time historically you slide into totalitarianism, it is a slide and it happens segment by segment. That's what's actually going to happen if you have large scale disarmament. And we know that conservatives are very individualistic, mm -hmm. conservatives convince themselves this isn't going to affect me. And before you know it, you could well have no significant obstacles preventing the enactment of hate speech laws and, and other ways of criminalizing dissent. Right. So I think that in order to avoid being caught between, which by the way, we don't want to be caught between the horns of great civil conflict or totalitarian rule, that's not a desirable situation to be in, for one. In order to avoid being stuck in that situation, we need to raise as much of a stink about the possibility of court packing now, because that will defeat the major strategic advantage of court packing, which is that people won't understand that it's a coup. Yeah. If everyone is saying that this is a coup the left is doing, it becomes much less appealing for the left strategically. Right. The left might say, well, let's try to do something more gradual, like we'll, you know, we'll give Puerto Rico statehood or something. And while there are significant risks to that, they don't involve automatic abolition of the constitutional system of government. Right. Right. Yes, that's that's a good point. This is the most strategic route to go by far. So this next question I have is kind of touches on what you just said, which is that the reason why this strategy by the left of packing the Supreme Court and then subsequently kind of gradually chipping away at rights here and there for this group here and there, because American conservatives who tend to be more individualistic and don't really feel the need to defend those, I think you said in the article, further right than themselves. How do we get people to shift their thinking about this? Because so many conservatives I know, I get so frustrated because I understand where they're coming from, but it's very unhelpful. They're just desperately want to compromise. I think they think that the left will be appeased. And so they desperately want to be like, oh, well, you know, people really shouldn't say X, Y, and Z. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal that these militants are shutting down free speech in this way or well, not everybody should have a gun. So I think it's, you know, they like desperately want to find this common ground because I think they think it's going to help. <laughs> so how do we kind of get them to realize right. like doing that over and over and over again? I mean, it's not working. It's not going to work. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think awareness of history is the best remedy for that. And, and we can see that amongst Christians who are familiar with the Bible in the case of biblical history. 
Christians who know the Bible pretty well will identify present day situations and say, this is similar to this biblical dilemma. So the Bible informs me about how I ought to respond to it. So I think if people were more aware of the way that totalitarianism comes to happen in history, which by the way, the court packing, I would say now is a strategy amongst the left. What I suggested as a potential route to totalitarianism in the United States, I do not think that there's any one group on the left that is sort of conspiratorially plotting this out as a sort of strategy for future control of the country. I just think that's inevitably how totalitarianism comes to pass mm. um, because it's on its face the sort of path of least resistance for someone who wants totalitarian power. And the fact is that, and I think one of the most pertinent examples I give in the, the piece is the Roman dictator Sulla. People can effectively establish totalitarian control and silence dissent by isolating people, by capitalizing on, as you said, that sort of self-deception that, well, I'll just be somewhat more compliant, more agreeable than the other people on my side, and this won't affect me. Totalitarians can capitalize on that illusion in order to eliminate all of their opponents by, for example, I give the example of the Roman tyrant Sulla would post a short list in the forum of people who were to be killed. Those people would all be killed. And then he would post a somewhat longer list and, and so on and so forth. And the point here was that Sulla was what we would call today on the political right, and he was killing people on the political left. But the point was that people on the then political left would power and keep their heads down and say, this isn't going to affect me. I'm not on the list. And there would never be a concerted organized reaction to stop this from happening. If he had posted a complete list all at once, then it might not have worked. People might have risen up. This is where this, the slogan divide and conquer right. comes from. People ought to at least know that phrase and then recognize that happening when they see conservatives throwing everyone to their immediate right under the bus, for example, or deceiving themselves into thinking of what's happening now, the constriction of the Overton window will not affect me, my family, people I know. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. History would help quite a bit. Yeah, and that kind of leads to my, I think, final question because I think, you know, people can read the article. Oh, and I'll also plug, uh, we now have a Stasios community on Facebook. So if you listen to this podcast, you really enjoy this, you can request to join that community. And that's a good place to ask questions and meet other people. We're also on MeWe, right? We are. We are on MeWe. You can find us on Facebook or MeWe. Yes, Facebook or MeWe. Find the Stasios community. And you could interact with Ian and ask even more specific questions than what I'm asking but so people read your article, they're going to sound the alarm. They're going to share this. We're going to start making packing the Supreme Court is an attempted coup or not an attempted coup. If they achieved it, it would be a coup. What else should American conservatives be doing? Where should they start? Maybe as far as digging into history. I think a lot of people right now feel pressure to act in some way, they see that there's a lot of unrest. They see that there's a lot of unknowns. What is just your encouragement to them in this weird cultural moment? Well, my encouragement would be that history is not linear. And this is a point that I often make. It always, I think, in the moment feels like history is linear. When there's one side that's ascendant, that controls all the cultural institutions, it can seem like their victory is inevitable, but that's not the case. And there have been many, many occasions in history when what we would now call the political left has said to itself, 
our ascendancy is inexorable. There's nothing the traditionalists can do. And then society has gone in the completely opposite direction. And I think we can see the seeds of this kind of successful reaction and throwing off of, of left-wing cultural hegemony in, for example, J.K. Rowling's becoming still a leftist, but increasingly hostile to the cultural hegemony monopoly of the left, or in the fact that left-wing activists are now trying to alienate Joe Rogan, also a very influential voice, also someone on the left. You have these left-wing social justice-oriented Spotify employees are trying to have him you know, strictly regulated or kicked off of Spotify. Right. Because it is innate in the nature of the left to always be contracting the Overton window. Adrian Vermeul had an excellent column where he said, this is the festival of reason. It's the sacrament of the cultural left is you must always identify new forces of darkness and reaction to be banished and, and consigned to the margins of society. So if it's in the nature of your ideology to always be doing that, then your ideology is deeply structurally unstable. You're always going to be alienating more and more people until your monopoly on the culture is thrown off and people are sick. Mm. So I think that's very plausible. That's a good point. The problem is right now we're looking at a political and not a cultural problem. Yeah. So we need to alert people about this political danger and prevent things from getting much, much worse, far worse, I think, than we right now can imagine. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. Very sobering and informative, as usual. Always fun to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carmen. This was productive. And we made good time. It was efficient. We did make good time. <laughs>